0: Hello, I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv.
1: And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London.
0: And we are unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. Jonathan, I have only one thing to say to you this week.
1: Oh no, what is it?
0: You are a supernova. (laughs) 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 I've been practicing this all week, my friend, all week. Yeah, I think you need to go
1: an octave deeper. Lower? I think lower. Really?
0: You're doing, you're trying to be my voice coach? Man d- yeah, from I'm- print journalism to woman <laughs> from TV journalism. You're trying to be my voice coach. <laughs> um, we ha- We should explain to anyone who hasn't seen We Crashed that I, uh, should we say, forced, coerced? Uh, I don't know. Uh, twisted your arm that you should watch We Crash, then we should discuss this. So yeah. this is what we're No, no, no. I was
1: going to say that if I sound a little bit croaky, it's because last night was yet another late night as I, for- you know, I, I was forced. But I'm actually much enjoying binge watching. We crashed, um, and we have decided that Anne Hathaway as what is she Rivka? Um, well, a Rebecca, kind of new role model. but yeah,
0: it turns into Rivka at some point. This he is the story, of course, girl. of uh, the downfall of WeWork, and the center is Adam Newman and his wife. He's the Israeli, as he calls himself, serial entrepreneur, and I will add, uh, how should we call it, charmer and charlatan, who took down, who who sort of founded the company, of course, and then took it down um and it's uh, and it's quite remarkable and it's based on a podcast which uh, of the same name which we should well
1: be- this got me thinking uh, yoni i think this is where obviously we're leading here i mean the the we need an eight-part apple tv dramatization of unholy i'm not sure what the play on the word would be because obviously we work became we crashed i don't know what they do I, what do you
0: mean we holy this is what yeah, we should okay it.
1: it could be a franchise Um, But obviously the casting decision's already been made, which is Anne Hathaway plays Johnny Levy. I'm not really sure that Jared Leto or Leto, however you say (laughs) it. Leto. The Leto, okay, the very uh, handsome young uh, lead is quite right for Jonathan Freeland for this role. I will obviously have my agent discuss it with him, but no, it's really—I mean, it's a very, it's a very engaging I'm, I'm, show. And I'm voting for he, Kenneth Branagh for you. I'm just saying, okay, but listeners can
0: can uh, you know I vote if they happily, want.
1: I will happily take Kenneth Branagh. That will be fine. But I thought um, it surprised me how good it is, um, and completely sort of got me um, from the start. Um, and inevitably, on this show, we must say—I mean, first of all, what a brilliant accent! that jared yeah off, and israeli, israeli mannerism
0: accent. and pretty good acts pretty good israeli accent usually he comes
1: kind of off as properly israeli but also right. the show is really i mean not big on but it brings out the fact there is something essentially israeli about him but also about the idea the idea right. of this shared workspace but the thesis of the program is he's trying to recreate his kind of kibbutz youth in the sort of bet yeladim in the kind of children's house of the kibbutz and mm-hmm. that's i thought that was you know a Anyway, obviously of interest to us, but I thought it was a decent take.
0: And and it makes sense, right? And from a narrative perspective and, and, but but you know, I have to say he really, and again, it's based on a true story. So some of it is probably true and some of it is drama and fiction, but you see the sort of two sides. If you have to stereotype the Israeli, right? You see the two sides, one on the one hand, really charismatic and sort of in tune with human sensitivities and knowing how to, well, you know, sell people, uh, whatever he wants to sell, on the other hand, obviously, you know, kind of a, how shall we call it, fake it till you make it, uh, not yes. a man who likes to work too hard and then he kind of doesn't make it and still fakes it. Uh, so it's kind of the stereotype of the the both sides of, of being Israeli. I think, uh, obviously, no to the world, we are not all like this. And kind yeah. of asking myself, you know, how much financial value does charisma actually have? It's an interesting Well, plenty. Question.
1: I mean, billions. Probably $4.4
0: billion or $47 I mean, you think billion. It, you right.
1: think it has a lot. But I know it's a very um, watchable thing. I think the, the Israeliness uh, is going to engage people like us, obviously. Um, but I think it works even on a sort of different level. I thought two things about it. one, really smart in a way to do a parable of the sort of digital startup, the digital crash with a company that actually isn't digital. It's not a tech company. <laughs> right It's right. selling really empty space. I mean, he's just selling this idea that, you know, a shared workspace. But that's quite clever to sort of come at the tech phenomenon, but just slightly at the side. Uh, but also, um there was this moment really early on in the first episode. I'm not as deep into it as you are. I haven't had uh, seen as much. but, this thing where he's addressing a whole group of students and says, you will always be trying to recreate this moment for the rest of your life. And they're all like the yeah. kind of puzzled Because, you know, even when you're successful and you'll go on some trip to Las Vegas, what you'll really be trying to recreate is this. And it yeah. just struck me that actually hearing that in an Israeli accent, there's something there. I know this is a reach, by the way, yeah. just if anyone thinks what I'm about to say is a reach. But there's something there of the whole phenomenon of the kind of diaspora kid who goes on Israel tour when they're 16, birthright tour often for Americans, or does a gap year on a kibbutz. And on some level, that is a kind of emotional peak that they are always trying to recreate. There was something about hearing it come out of his very good Israeli accent, that notion. I thought it just spoke to some sort of bigger truth than just, you know, story of a crush and burn startup, there was something kind of insightful about that. And that's what his communal space idea was to recreate the kind of joy of youth. I thought it was very perceptive.
0: I think that's a very interesting uh, way of seeing it, which is probably another kind of fake thing he was trying to say, but still it kind of resonated as a character saying something, resonated with with the audience and resonate with you. It's nice. Okay, uh, keep on watching it. We're going to talk about it again, I think. Well, I think we
1: should. We'll, we, think. we should talk about it again. While I'm, we're I'm elevating gonna... the
0: world's consciousness. Um, I'm still I'm still working on my Anne Hathaway. Yeah, you need um, to go
1: deeper. You need to go deeper. That's essentially my voice coach note uh, for today. Um, talking of tech startups, we have a big topic uh, today, which we are going to talk about, a very famous Israeli tech company, but with a very famous journalist because... Our guest is, drumroll.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk to Ronan Farrow. We're very excited about uh, that. Uh, And we are also, we have a lot of other stuff to talk about.
1: We do, but so we we will. We're going to get to Ronan Farrow later, but, you know, bit of a star, journalist from The New Yorker, all about NSO and Pegasus. Right.
0: We should just note to our listeners who aren't British that when Jonathan says a bit of a star, he means a huge star. Just speak English, man. Not what they speak in England. Um. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So we're we're going to crash uh, to reality for a minute if we can before we yeah. uh, get to our big interview, which is um, we you know we kind of left for Pesach break. We have to say that two weeks ago, um, Israel was uh, suffering from four terror attacks in two weeks in four different uh, cities. Now, since then, we did see uh, tensions around the Al Aqsa Mosque and uh, Hamas flexing its muscles. We saw some rockets in the southern part of Israel, and also courtesy of Hamas Lebanon, we saw. Uh, a rocket uh, in the northern part of Israel. But compared to the two weeks leading up to Pesach, uh, the two weeks since have been relatively uh, quiet still, I would say. We're still in the month of Ramadan, a few days, the holy Muslim month of, of Ramadan intersecting with Israeli Independence Day. Very tense days still ahead. But right now, again, relatively quiet. I would say that I bet that Israeli security officials are really counting the hours until these kind of tense days uh, will will pass.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I remember in our conversations going into this period, mm-hmm. uh, just before our uh, Pesach break, uh, we talked about the calculus on obviously on the Israeli side, but there was, I think, maybe it was a hope more than an expectation that on Hamas's side, there was no desire to inflate or escalate. Uh, this inflame, this conflict that they, mm-hmm. for their own reasons, wanted there to be a peaceful Ramadan. There'd been quite a lot of uh, reporting saying that there was anger on the Gazan street, effectively saying we were lost Ramadan last year to violence and conflict. We lost it the previous year to COVID and people just did not want this to get worse. Mm-hmm. And. I would ask, actually, has that played some part in the quiet, relative quiet of the last four months?
0: Uh, I, I think for sure. Look, what we saw last time, uh, last year in May, was that Hamas was using the tensions around Al Aqsa Mosque to basically start a conflict with Israel um, and and winning a lot of points. Uh, While doing so, because it it made Hamas look like the protector of Al-Aqsa, which Israel was always sort of very careful to to sort of differentiate between Al-Aqsa, between Jerusalem, between the West Bank and between Gaza. What now, as you say, Hamas, it seems like they're not interested in that kind of skirmish. Uh, again, things can change uh, every uh, moment, you know, and we, we're we kind of used to this on this podcast when we record on Thursday and sometimes things dramatically change by Friday. I think that is part of what's going on. Now we're talking about things that are, look like they're shaky, but still sustainable. So on the topic of that, I think we need to mention the Bennett government. Also a bit of a recess because of uh, Pesach. We talked about, you know, the the political turmoil, and the fact that Bennett has lost his majority. If you want to, one of our listeners wants to remind himself or herself of this i would recommend listening back to our Segal: uh, political mayhem episode but he lost his majority knesset is returning from recess after independence day uh and we will see a lot of political uh, mayhem uh at that at that point for sure just a comeback of that
1: i mean that that was left almost like a sort of cliffhanger episode yep. the way we left things because we like um, yeah, to I do that. We like, we like that. It, it. You know, the, as I understand it, I think the coalition it's it's a sixty sixty you know deadlock mm-hmm. in the Knesset, sixty seats each. The the governing block and the you know opposition block. I think it's said something that even though there was a kind of Pesach break, you'll you'll tell me, but. If people had wanted a defect they could have done in the last two weeks, the fact there have not been more defections, there's no law that says it's impossible to do it. they could. No, have been, they and could so, have just as in a way, you can read something into the fact that things did not escalate in the security conflict, the fact that this has not escalated mm-hmm. too in this period, it you know tells its own story. Where it goes next, I don't know. but. The fact that it's held on. There were some people who, right at the beginning, were saying, you know, count this coalition's days, uh, life in days rather than Mm -hmm. weeks, and it's already Mm -hmm. passed one small test.
0: True. I I agree with you, and I think that it will probably take maybe a little longer than than we thought. But these two things are tied together. I mean, if this, this situation on the security level remains quite calm, then you would assume that this government still has a little bit of breathing space. But again, this is the leader of the settler movement sitting with an Islamist party, the far right and the far left and the center of the Israeli politics sitting all together. If this becomes a shaky and a volatile security situation, then you're going to see a a very fast unraveling. Um, I will tell you that in the meantime, Bennett did receive uh, death threats this week. A bullet and a letter was sent to his uh, wife's uh, workplace. The media and the rest of the commentators were a little more uh, busy, preoccupied, talking about the um, immense amount of money his family spent, uh, taxpayer money on takeaway a month, 12,000 shekels, Jonathan, which is about, uh, I believe, 3,000 pounds and $4,000. So that a was a whole big money. story here. It's a lot of money. I don't know, maybe they were eating at WeWork. But anyway, um, they uh, uh, kind of went back and said that they will pay for now pay for this uh, amidst this uh, I mean, just speech. on that, so no, by the way, just right. on that,
1: to me, that is so baffling when politicians make a mistake like that because mm-hmm. does, does he not know that one of the things that people remember long after many of the policy and other decisions have been forgotten, that the thing that's stuck in the public mind about BB and Sara Netanyahu mm-hmm. were those bills for ice cream, for catering. So See, even you remember not, that. Yeah, it, those things cut through. And so why is there not a kind of impu- a reflex that just, oh, well, well, you know, before you dial Deliveroo, you know, Uber Eats, Remember what happened to the last guy. Don't do that. And I just never understand that with politicians. Not that they yep. make mistakes, everybody makes mistakes, but that they make this same mistake that right. was publicly advertised to them as being a huge it, error. It's
0: a very good question by the way. His his first line of defense was saying Netanyahu spent much more, which is factually correct, but doesn't explain why you spent 12,000 shekels a, a month, right? I mean, it's just it doesn't it doesn't cut it as, a, as an argument anymore. Uh, and I think the reason is, um, in Bennett's case, he has so much to deal with, right? This is a prime minister that kind of had to hit the ground running, didn't have enough of a legitimacy, uh, public legitimacy, still doesn't, has so much to deal with. It kind of didn't didn't register for him. There's a whole big story about his family still living in Ra'anana while well, he has to move to Jerusalem. You know, it's a big deal. He was kind of an accidental prime minister. So this whole thing got shot out of a gun. Yeah, he didn't deal with his takeaway, you know, accounts. Who spends so much money on takeaway? I mean, that's a lot. Why don't you cook? It's just, a, you know, yes. it's a big deal. And it was a big story in this country uh,
1: this past I month. know, I don't, I can completely understand why. And it does give a little insight into a family's domestic arrangements. You know, your question yep. about why don't you cook? Then obviously the pressure goes on both him, but also his partner. Why doesn't you, you know, you mm-hmm. get into all kinds of stuff. These stories are always... Uh, A nightmare, I think. I was going to say that in our break, I think perhaps it's true to say the world's attention was not on the politics of Israel, but instead the internal politics of France, which Mm -hmm. had not one but two rounds of voting while we were uh, off the air, as it were. Um, we were braced, I think it's fair to say, we can tell listeners that I think if the election result had gone another way, we may have come right back.
0: Yep, we were, we we had that plan B.
1: (laughs) We had plan B to bring an unholy to you if uh, that unholy outcome had happened. Uh, But Emmanuel Macron obviously won both rounds. Um, I mean, I think the reason why we would have come back, obviously, is Marine Le Pen uh, would have been seen despite all her attempts to Airbrush and sort of Photoshop her image to improve it is just still seen uh, as you know basically a sort of far right leader with dodgy history on Jews and a lot of that is judgments about her father Mm -hmm. uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen who was you were really overt in in some of his anti-Jewish remarks Um, with with her it's partly you know baggage but I think there was just real nervousness. around the world in general, around particularly in Europe, because she's essentially a Frexiteer. She would mm-hmm. have wanted to France to have, have left. She didn't say so, but that's where she was, her direction of travel. But there was a particular Jewish angst about the idea of uh, a Marine Le Pen victory. And I think despite the real alarm that 40% plus voted for a far-right leader in a big European country, that is scary, there was the initial reaction, at least, was relief. Uh, that she had not won. And she was soundly beaten, 17-point victory, but still very, very alarming that a far-right leader can poll that well in a major Western European country.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, McColl wins, and it's a big margin, but it's shrinking, right? And it, it, when you compare it to the margin of 32% uh, five years ago, then you can definitely see uh, that. I- on that note, I would press, and we, we discussed Eric Zemmour in one of our previous episodes, um, very interesting, if I could bring you the results of what the Israeli-French voters uh, voted. Because I think it, it it's an interesting sort of angle into this story. So, so these first, are
1: expat French people living right, in Right,
0: who, who, who have the right to vote, and they voted in this election. So I, it's really interesting. This is the first round, right? Zemmour, Le Pen, you still have Zemmour in the, in, in the game. Tel Aviv, right, polling station. You have 30% for Emmanuel Macron, 55% for Eric Zemmour, and 3% for Marine Le Pen. Now, we have to pause on that for a minute. I'm going to tell you the, the results of the second round, which make it even more interesting, because then you just have Macron and Le Pen, and the answer in the, in, in the, the results in the uh, Tel Aviv polling booth is 85% for Macron, almost 86%, by the way, and 14% for Le Pen. Very interesting here. And I think what is going on, look, Jews don't vote for Le Pen. I, I think it's pretty safe to say here, They, as you said, they her dodgy record on, on relationship with Jews, definitely her father being a Holocaust denier. They don't trust her. Zemmour, on the other hand, being an anti-Islamophobe, uh, an Islamophobe, right, and anti immigrants, does speak to some of these people, definitely after Bataclan, definitely after uh, Charlie Hebdo and Toulouse, but he's Jewish. And somehow I think they kind of trust him more and the minute he's out of the picture, they'll do everything to block uh, uh, Marine Le Pen. That is the way that I read these these uh, um, results.
1: I think it goes to exactly what you said. I think it shows, unfortunately, a strong Islamophobic motivation mm-hmm. uh, there. And Islamophobia is palatable when it comes out of the mouth of a Jew, uh, Eric Zemmour, even though, as I've argued in print and on this program, I think he is that a very rare thing of an anti-Semitic Jew. Um, mm-hmm. His remarks you know, hideous remarks about Muslims, but pretty terrible things he said about Jews over the years. But yet he somehow kosherized anti-Muslim feeling enough that Jews felt able to vote for it. And yet, what they when, when it, the choice of Marine Le Pen, obviously they ran a mile, not because they thought she was just a general bigot, or somehow, you know, uh, an unpalatably right-wing because Zamor was even more right-wing than her, or right. unpalatably pro-putin. I know i saying he
0: made her look like Hillary Clinton, but I mean, well, he made her look you, a little more moderate than she really is.
1: Well, that, but also she wasn't against us, you know, she was she's not against Jews, they thought. I I would doubt that a lot myself, but they thought that and therefore they were ready to vote for her. It's a it's a quite dispiriting set of results, I have to say, um, about what they, you know, what people are ready to take if they themselves don't feel threatened. It is also incidentally an example of a phenomenon. I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but of, of diasporas being more royal than the king, you know, more nationalist than the populations at home. Uh, the fact that they were ready to vote for the ultra-right candidate in such big yeah. numbers in that first round. Uh, in a way that there are, you know, Russians in Australia who are more madly pro-Putin and, you know, for invading Ukraine than than Russians in Russia. This struck mm-hmm. me as an example of this sort of extreme yeah. diaspora.
0: Yeah, I would I would make another po- another point because our USP, if we're talking in high tech jargon, uh, would be to talk about right. Israel and the Jewish community. Uh, I will talk about the fact that key Jewish institutions. In France, right, uh, the Jewish, uh, uh, the Representative Council of Jewish Institutions, the CRIF, and the Consistoire, they they both uh, endorsed Macron, which is an interesting phenomenon in itself, in which Jewish organizations are taking a stand politically, which they traditionally tried to refrain from doing, and saying, listen, we have this is an existential threat, Marine Le Pen is an existential threat, and we have to uh, endorse. Uh, Macron, uh, There were Jewish other Jewish organizations that didn't like it just because of the b- becoming political. But I think it's an interesting phenomenon that we we'll, we will have to uh, discuss.
1: Yes, um, we we will. Um, but uh, as we said, some relief that we don't have to um, we didn't have to break our vacation. That's the minor <laughs> point. But the more the more important thing is that would have been, I think, uh, absolutely desperately alarming um, to people all around the world. So. Um, you know, we didn't. We we managed to dodge that at least. Um, we should get to our guest, uh, yes. who is um, well. You're going to say something about him, but the phenomenon that we want to talk about, which we have talked about on this podcast before, is NSO, the NSO Group, uh, Israeli tech company specializing in a cyber weapon known as Pegasus, uh, which is an amazing bit of kit, which essentially enables the user or the holder of this. Weapon to crack open uh, the telephones of the the you know phones of those they target, and to the extent where they can just go through, you know, if it was my phone, they'd be able to go through all my photographs, all my messages, uh, contacts, but also even at a distance activate the camera and microphone to enable it to be a bug, a surveillance mm-hmm. device in real time. It's an incredible piece of kit that is wanted by governments all over the world. We spoke um, some time ago with uh, the head of the company, uh, Shalev Julio, who you know went through, we went through with him all the various charges, the claims that human rights abusing governments are using Pegasus, uh, that even democratic governments are using it to spy on dissidents, journalists and activists, uh, and that this tool has become uh, you know, a weapon for 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 bad rather than for good, because, of course, they build it as an amazing tool to spot and track down bad guys, terrorists and criminals and so on. But instead, has it been deployed against the good guys, you know? And that was the charge sheet with uh, Shalav Julio. But we have now a conversation with the journalist who I think has really um, written an extraordinary piece in The New Yorker all about it.
0: Ronan Farrow is the dictionary definition of Wunderkind. He is an investigative reporter and contributing writer to The New Yorker. His reporting on the Harvey Weinstein case won him a Pulitzer Prize for public service. He's the author of Catch and Kill and War on Peace. He's also a lawyer, a graduate of Yale Law School, recently completed his PhD in political science at Oxford University, also served as a State Department official in the Hillary Clinton years, and once on Israeli television confessed that he likes a good gift-filter fish. We will also discuss sure. that. Ronan, thank you very much for, for talking to us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, last week, Ronan, you made The Weather uh, with an extraordinary piece in the New Yorker magazine, all about the NSO group. We've talked about them on this podcast. We had an interview with their uh, CEO on the podcast some weeks ago. The piece was called How Democracies Spy on their citizens. And we're going to talk about that, some few other issues as well. I mean, there's so much to get into about the NSO piece, but I mean, I have to say there are just some jaw-dropping details in there. And I thought just to give people a flavour of the kind of stuff you uncovered, I mean, you described the cat and mouse game that is going on between NSO with its uh, Pegasus software and the various tech platforms that are kind of cracked open by Pegasus. And just, I'm just going to pick one thing at random, just because I think it's a flavor of how how deep you went into this. Just tell us what rickrolling is (laughs) and how it fits into this story.
2: I love that we got to do a a dry New Yorker style parenthetical about, you know, which parties had confirmed and which parties had denied recalling rickrolling one another. (laughs) A rickroll is for the uninitiated, the mercifully uninitiated, uh, a, a, a practice of sending. A Rick Astley song uh, from, I guess, the late '80s, (laughs) early '90s. What what year is that? '88. '80s. Um, Yeah. uh, You know, as a form of trolling someone, like a link they think will be some other substantive thing becomes this iconic song, Uh, and you know, it's it's sort of deeply enmeshed in nerd culture, and one of the claims from uh, some. WhatsApp engineers and executives, uh, that were involved in the, the hacking case that you talked about, uh, was that at a certain point in the process, they began receiving malicious data packets that they speculated may have been designed to sort of monitor whether, uh, whether the WhatsApp folks were onto, uh, the interlopers into this, in their system. Uh, and in one of them was, uh, a Rickroll was a YouTube link to that song. So they realized at a certain what? point, oh, we're also getting trolled.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just
2: part we're of this. We never
0: imagined this. His career would arrive at that point. Yeah, I
2: know. I mean, it's it's wild stuff. And and for what it's worth, the contents of that parenthetical was, uh, you know, the NSO folks saying uh, we don't we don't remember that <laughs> uh, without further elaboration. Uh, so you can make of that what you will. But I, I appreciate your highlighting that part of the reporting because it was something that I also just personally found fascinating, Uh, you know, it's it's very kind of Mr. Robot, these scenes of, um, you know, across continents, uh, computer programmers popping up from behind pieces of digital cover and exchanging sniper fire. Um, And it's a seldom seen world. And I think I was a, a beneficiary of a moment of change where some of these big tech platforms that have these incredibly secretive security teams inside them, kind of transitioned from a moment where it was viewed as a sign of weakness and something that was going to scare Wall Street if they talked about these vulnerabilities uh, and the security efforts to combat these vulnerabilities uh, to to more of a place where they're realizing that this warfare is everywhere and the combatants on the other side, like NSO Group, are increasingly sophisticated and they've got to kind of switch to a posture of more open confrontation, which is partly manifesting in the courts and I think partly manifesting in, you know, the first reporting we're getting that sort of pulls back the curtain on those security teams inside those companies.
0: I mean, obviously, you had really extraordinary access to NSO, and I kind of want to ask you what your impression is of them. I mean, there are the people who would think they're the evil league of evil, right, and and right. The, as black as you can get, and the others who will say, I think this is probably prevalent more in Israel. That you'd say. You know, they're somewhere in that gray area, right? They created this tool, whether they can't or they won't control it, but they're not essentially bad people. Maybe that's a superficial way of, of, of explaining it. But wh- where do you fall on
2: this? I-, I wanted to ask you two the same question, having interviewed Shalev. You know, I I think it- it's interesting. Since this story ran, uh, I've gotten outreach from current NSO employees who have said, you know, wow, this seemed incredibly fair and and balanced. Um, and it's, it's tough reporting and, and, you know, what, the way I represented it to the folks at NSO throughout the process of conversations about this was that it was going to be tough reporting. And it's an unusual situation in that I'm coming into a circumstance where they're already being accused of serial complicity in murder (laughs) and war crimes. You know, I mean, this is, this is not a a company that's enjoying sort of rosy press before I come onto the scene. And I think that they felt there's. I've gotten a lot of questions for why. Why would they do, do this? Why at a moment like that, when you're sort of in uh, it, certainly uh, in the telling of many of their critics, a moment of crisis? Uh, why would you let uh, you know a prominent investigative reporter in to to look at a lot of your stuff? A- and certainly, I'm grateful that they did, whatever their motives. Uh, I'm very conscious of the fact that. Um, everyone always does have a motive in these situations. And obviously there is, you know, a dog and pony show that is is being built for me anytime I go into a situation like this. So I'm I'm hip to that. That said, I do think it counts for something and that there is a sincere component to their mm-hmm. opening their doors. And I do think that they're not wrong to buy the argument that against that backdrop, a more rounded, deeper investigative approach that does give a fair airing to their arguments, uh, you know, is not the most destructive thing to them in the world. Um, so it is not a friendly piece to them, but I think it's also mm-hmm. not a piece that, um, you know, it is unhelpful from their standpoint in terms of elucidating their arguments because it really does give a fair shake and you can agree with them or not, you can find them insincere or not, but it does air essentially all of their major cases they make in defense of their tech. And you, you've heard them make those cases yourself. You can see it in the argument yet again, in the article yet again. Uh, they say we are an arms dealer and we're an arms dealer in an unregulated space. Uh, you know There aren't equivalents to the Geneva Convention, to all kinds of international treaties on intercontinental ballistic missiles uh to all kinds of international treaties on chemical weapons. And I, I think one of the arguments they make that that does resonate most with me is this idea that there's an urgent need for equivalence to that kind of international regulation because there is terrible violent abuse of this technology happening. And, and you know, there are fine points on which they sort of dispute allegations or they suggests that there's an anti-Semitic conspiracy from some of these activist groups like Citizen Lab. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, this isn't really one of those cases where I'm reporting a piece where the crux of it is a factual denial. They're they're by and large acknowledging, certainly the broad strokes, including the fact that their technology is getting abused, which is a really interesting conversation to then have. And um, I, I don't suggest to you that they... Were honest to me at all times. Uh, and and certainly there's a lot of, you know, scrutinizing of the facts in this reporting. Uh, but I, I do think that there's something to that argument. And, and I also think there's something to their argument that if if not them, it will be other players in this market. You know, this this piece goes to pains to convey that while they have become a poster child, this is a $12 billion plus industry. And there are a lot of actors that are subject to even less Kind of regulation and less desire to put on a show for the press and and less craving of lit- legitimacy than you know Shalev Julio and company over at NSO. But what did you think of of them and and their arguments? Well, I mean, we we, well, we enjoyed fall slightly you
0: differently on that.
2: Yeah, yeah we, t- we did. We, had, we, we came in it differently.
1: Well, anyway, I'm going to wrap my answer to that in in a, in a follow up question back to you, which is. We're Jews. We're just
0: going to ask you another question as an answer. Go, to on, your go question. for it.
1: And that's Love what that. we, do. we um, do. But just the Israeli, the fact that this is an Israeli company. I mean, what? How central to the story do you think that is in terms of the degree of attention it gets, but also how it came about? Is it an accident that a company that developed this extraordinary weapon came out of Israel? Uh, and is the response to it around the world unrelated to the fact that it's an Israeli company? Would there be the same fuss if this had come out of Iceland?
2: Well, those are two very different questions. I, I think to the first question, in my mind, uh, it, it's absolutely of significance that and not accidental that this emerges from this incredible intellectual culture and startup culture I- in Tel Aviv, and that Israel, you know, as has been much written about by. Many reporters, including myself, is a, a hotbed of innovation, partly because of the unique pipeline that comes out of mandatory service in military and intelligence units. You know the fact that these private surveillance companies can recruit so readily from uh, you know uh, eighty two hundred uh, veterans, you know people who. Have a skill set. This is the
1: specialist military unit, intelligence, the, the right?
2: intelligence unit. intelligence um, unit that's sort of very sought after in terms of personnel for for this kind of a, a job. Uh, Shalev Julio, the the CEO over at at NSO Group, likes to sort of uh, emphasize that he was not eighty two hundred and is a man of the people. Um, yeah, you know, th- this is uh, a pool of talent that is unique in the world. And clearly has powerful results in terms of innovation and entrepreneurship. So, uh, no, I don't think it's an accident. And I, and I do think it's of some significance that it's it's uh, an Israeli context for this. And, and for a number of the, um, you know, surveillance and espionage companies that I've reported on.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: In some of these skill sets, it's, you know, it, it they're the best in the world.
0: Yeah. We can talk forever about NSO, but I do want to use the opportunity that you're here and talk about your your groundbreaking report uh, in The New Yorker, which detailing the, the Harvey Weinstein story, your piece not only won a Pulitzer, we have to say that it it really changed the world or changed the way the world thinks about sexual harassment and deals with sexual harassment. It's been a few years since. And I do wonder if, you know you think that enough has been done? Do we know for sure that there's not another room in another network office or another Hollywood studio in which these, or any other workplace for that matter, that these things are not going on in?
2: Well, thank you, Yonid for the, the kind words about the reporting. Um, You know, it was in some ways a a harrowing process to, to go through, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, confronting reporting often is, and, and that was particularly confronting stuff. And, all credit to the sources in those stories. There were a lot of people who had to do a very brave thing at a time when it seemed impossible that it would at one point be kind of celebrated in the way that you just described, uh, and where they really felt they were kind of putting everything on the line. Um, So that was, Mm -hmm. you know, an inspiring thing to see as well. I, I don't know, you know, these questions about the long-term social ramifications of some of the reporting are, are again, to go back to an answer I gave you earlier, sort of outside of the scope of what I look at most closely. And it doesn't mean that I, you know, disregard or put blinders on with respect to those implications. It just sort of becomes other people's jobs at a certain point, right? There are these incredible activists. There are people like Tarana Burke, who, you know, built the Me Too movement. Um, Whose, whose lives are devoted to uh, social organizing around these issues. And I'm just not uh, a participant in that. You know, I have a very narrow role, which is to closely scrutinize the facts and put them out into the world in as dispassionate a way as possible. And then, um, you know, most of the time be a little bit of a punching bag uh, as those stories get people mad because everything that I pick uh, to report on, I think has a degree of consequence that does get people mad. Um,
0: does seem to be that way. <laughs> yep,
2: yep. Um, y- you know, and, and, uh, that's a full-time job, uh, uh, doing that reporting and, and dealing with, uh, the, the immediate implications of it. So, so these questions about the attendant social movements, I'm just less well-versed in. I, I do think, you know, my observation is that we sort of went through a period of, uh, chaos in terms of people's views and standards around harassment issues being, um, You know, upheaved, and and my hope would be that the pendulum is kind of coming to a a slightly uh, more central position. And can you give us an
1: example of the kind of overcorrection that you have in mind there?
2: Well, I mean, I you you could think of any number of of obvious ones. You know, I reported on sort of serious violent crimes that were alleged. Um, that really would have been, I think, a source of as much criticism in, in virtually any era. I mean, this is, this is one thing that I think is often a misunderstanding because there was a much needed, I think, important and positive conversation about kind of gray areas, uh, you know, forms of harassment that maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago wouldn't have been. Uh, uh, as much of a source of criticism, uh, that, that gets conflated with that early reporting that I did, which was actually not on gray areas, right. It was about, you know, people sort of violently assaulting other people, um, in a way that, you know, would have upended people's careers and triggered criminal inquiries 40 years ago too. So I'm very, I'm glad for that wider conversation about, subtler shades of, of gray in this these issues. Um, and I think that was urgently overdue. But it also was something that followed from that reporting, um, not that was the subject of that reporting. So, you know, people talk about, yeah, there was a, an online article about Aziz Ansari. And, uh, you know, was he, uh, 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 you know, observing consent sufficiently on a date? You know, that's one that obviously gets held up a lot. Um, there, there's sort of a handful example of examples like that that I think were on the outer edge of, should this really be a subject of public discourse? Um, and again, I would just emphasize that's something that's you know very sort of distant from my reporting. But to, to your question, I, I do think that that's, uh, you know, whatever the merits of those sort of specific cases, and, and it would be very case by case, those sort of outer edges of should it be public or not, parts of the conversation. I, I do see that sort of coming to a place of greater equilibrium now. But I, I do think there's sort of less of that from my casual observation of it.
1: I'm just going to ask this. I'm struck by the distinction you make, and I think it's a really healthy one, between the job of, of a reporter rather than an, an, annual, uh, an analyst or a bloviating pontificating pundit. <laughs> Not pointing at anyone specifically. I mean, I, look, I can uh, bloviate what the best of
2: have <laughs> called upon, but. but... But it just
1: makes me wonder about your career, which has obviously been extraordinary and prodigious, that there you were working as a special envoy of the State Department of Hillary Clinton when you, I think, were age 24. You won a Pulitzer Prize by the time you were 30. And, you're, you know, you're a graduate of Yale Law School. In a way, is it possible that this is just, this is, you know, preparatory to work where you will come off that? fence and say, okay, now I will get into the arena, uh, and uh, not just opinionate, but actually be drawn to changing things through politics.
2: Well, I have a lot of respect for people who are in that side of the conversation. And, and you know, I, I also along the way, uh, you know, anchored an American cable news show for an hour every day, and talked plenty about opinions in that, in that context. Mm-hmm. So, so I have explored both of those sides of the conversation. I I just think that when I'm doing incredibly high stakes clinical investigative reporting, I don't need it to be inflected with opinion. And of course, every reporter has a worldview. And I think, you know, what I care about and the human rights issues that I champion, that comes across in the topics I select. Um, but But part of what I hope also gives me currency when I go to a company like NSO and say, "Hey, if you talk to me, it's not going to be a gotcha. Like you might not like the results, <laughs> but it's going to be fair. I think I can really stand by that. So, so to achieve that, I, I think you just you want as little noise around it as possible. And so, you know, it probably makes me a, a less juicy interview when I'm when I'm talking about these pieces.
0: So that would be so that would be no to politics then. I'm just trying to tie back to what politics.
2: politics. I mean, gosh, I, I I wish um I wish the American political system were sort of uh more inviting to people who uh don't have a desire to run the gauntlet of, you know, special interests politics and fundraising. Um mm-hmm. God bless the, the good and the few who go into politics and manage to kind of stay clean ethically. Um, but it's a, I think American politics specifically are in a very dark place in terms of that. And uh, it just seems like it would be incredibly challenging to kind of keep your soul intact. I don't know, maybe that's too cynical of you. There's no, gonna be it's some a, angry politicians a, a, a listening to this interview. <laughs> <laughs>
1: When your um, boss was on our podcast, David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker, ah, he ticked us off a little, David. very gently, very gently for being a little parochial and asking what I always call the sort of Boca Raton question, which is, this is a Jewish podcast, so welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and We want to know, you've spent a lot of time in Israel. Oh, my God, um, Jonathan, you're Jewish? I'm gonna, <laughs> Why didn't you say anything? It was anything? a moment, Why was a didn't moment you say out anything? myself. Um, <laughs> you, know, there, you, you know, your partner is Jewish. You have obviously some family I'm roots. I'm um, surrounded
2: by Jews. You live in the most At Jewish city in the Jews. world, you know let's
1: admit. Jews, let's yes. admit. So, so tell us about that. And particular. I'm interested, actually, on this level, when you go to Israel, mm. is there, you know, Yonit made a joke at the top about gefilte fish. In fact, I don't know <laughs> it the It a joke. What, it was yeah, a direct quote of him. Love He gefilte actually
2: gefilte said fish. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one okay. loves
0: gefilte fish. I love smoked no fish
2: in all forms. It's actually, it's non-denominational, okay. you know? I love, I think, I I think love you're flattering lot. gefilte fish. I love to gefilte call gefilte it smoked fish. fish. <laughs> I like sable, you know?
1: So go on, so tell us about putting NSO is the que- There was no question. To, the question <laughs> I'm getting to it. Jews. I'm getting God? to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, more or less. Well, I, I was going to get more con. specific. I was going to say, besides NSO, <laughs> yeah. you're in Israel. Tell us about what your impressions of Israel were, oh, of Israel? aside from NSO. I mean,
2: what an incredible place, right? I, I, my Israel experiences are sadly limited. I, I went when I was uh, a State Department, you know, junior State Department person. And got a little bit of, you know, the Tel Aviv experience, the West Bank experience. And I was, you know, in Tel Aviv in Jerusalem for some of this uh, reporting. But, you know, it's the experience I have of so much of the world, which is like, I'm in Jerusalem, I'm within, you know, almost line of sight of the wall, but I'm in meetings all day, and I, I don't do a single tourist thing. And it felt like my heart broke to not be able to just see more of the incredible historic things around me.
0: Finally, Jonathan wants to ask you, how is it possible that you started college at the age of 11? He's just embarrassed, but I
1: I will ask the question. Oh, yes, that's true. I was. I couldn't how believe that. How is that, that. But, humanly possible? How is that, how human-ly that possible? Why were you embarrassed to ask that?
0: No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yonit's <You're laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> teasing me. I would have gone in there early. I would have put the yeah, filter it. to wait, one wait, side. Ask you asked that you, the first the question. Day you you wanted to day day. make day. that the first
0: question. Exactly.
2: How did I do that? Why did I do that? Well, you know, I was testing in a certain way. There was a Johns Hopkins, you know, gifted youth, i.e., nerd program where kids would go take college courses in the summer and um the the admissions criterion for that was the SAT which is obviously our you know our standard college admissions test here and uh I you know so I started taking the SAT very young and like I yeah tested in a way where people said, well I you know we don't know what to do with you. Let's just like send you off to college basically. Um, So I I skipped I just started skipping grades, you know, with various tests that came out in certain ways and my own sort of fussy desire to read more and learn more, which was partly genuine intellectual curiosity and partly also probably, you know, some void of gay ambition and insecurity (laughs) that I was filling by, like, going, 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 going. You know, I don't... You know, I some shrink will psychologize me better, better than I could from afar, uh, at some point, maybe posthumously. But I, you know, I think I've, I've moved, uh, very fast and intensely, uh, and in a very kind of work focused way, uh, which can be exhausting even to me. Uh, so, so the academic piece of that was sort of part of that, that I needed to, you know, go, go, go. And, yeah you know absorb as much knowledge as possible and and that's that's not just the the child prodigy thing it's living a life that's very relentlessly work focused you know i've i've missed a lot of important weddings <laughs> and i and i feel bad about that
1: well we, people coming doing, on the podcast we... to feel bad tends to be our <laughs> specialist <laughs> now subject now that we we're feel so, we've achieved it's something our thing, it's our
2: thing <laughs> <laughs> invite me to weddings fam <laughs> i think that's um, that's where we're landing in all of this exactly um, i'm embarrassed that ronan caught
1: good. ronan got to the heart of our method when he went jews
2: thoughts <laughs> that, that was there was no question it was just should, like we should change jews, we should change, the title, Barbie, we should
0: change the title it. <laughs> it's,
1: it's totally true you question? saw me
2: i felt very seen <laughs> you then. threw in just, just the filter fish with also like almost no context i
1: thought it would serve as a question
2: but you're right no, I appreciated the question. I, I, I do see, look, if, if, if the question is, do you love Jews, it's uh, it's accurate. I do. I, have surrounded, I s- <laughs> have surrounded myself with with Jewish culture in the most wonderfully uh, Jewish city in the world. And sometimes I, I am fortunate enough to go to the other very Jewish city for reporting. Um, and I hope I get to see the beaches more next time.
0: We hope so, too. Ronan Farrow. thank you so much for talking to us. It was such a great conversation. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. It was a real pleasure.
1: Obviously, the guy is completely brilliant. Um, so sharp there with every question, and this piece of reporting is done is absolutely meticulous. I do recommend people read it, but I slightly just couldn't get over the image of the eleven-year-old. <laughs> I knew, I knew, it
0: was I mean, I knew you wanted to talk about that more than anything.
1: Partly because I just think there are you hear of these cases where people. You know, we, we end slightly where we began, but you know, you do hear of these sort of people who claim, you know, like our sort of uh, we work guy who overclaim and it turns out they did a week long summer school or something. <laughs> he really was a student at university, age 11. I mean, the guy's amazing. Uh, yeah. And all the awards over his shoulder. He's won basically every award prize in journalism and he's old. <laughs>
0: Um, I, you know, one of the things, again, I, I thought the NSO piece was, was excellent. I, I, you know, we are always, I think generally as journalists, we're always concerned with the question, whether our reporting changes things for the better. Um, and do we make an, do we actually, are we making an impact and, and just to be the person who broke the Harvey Weinstein story, who, who changed, you know, you, and he's sort of modest about it He said, no, it isn't me. And there are obviously a lot of us. Activists coming into the story, but you, he changed the way we talk about this. He changed the way we deal with this. It's it's pretty incredible, and I, I'm glad that that was also part of our of our conversation today.
1: Yeah, and a good reminder of what journalism can do, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, no, he's really he's really doing it. Um, this week uh, is as we you and I speak now. Uh, it is Yom HaShoah, um, mm-hmm. Holocaust Remembrance Day. It's, it's marked to some extent by Jewish communities, I would say, outside Israel, not really by others so much, a bit, but others uh, make January the 27th, Holocaust Memorial Day, the focus. It is a slight quirk having two days in the calendar. I have A little part of me wonders how long it's sustainable to, I, I worry always about sort of confusing the wider world by saying it was only three months ago, but here we are, we're doing it again, lighting a candle and, and so on. But mm. I know it's a massive deal in Israel.
0: Yes, of course. Well, this is the uh, first, you know, we're in in a week of very, let's say, on the secular Israeli calendar, the the holiest of days, if I ever can say this, it's Holocaust Memorial Day, Yom HaShoah, uh, which officially Israel decided upon in 1951, and it decided to have Yom HaZikaron, which is the Memorial Day for Fallen Soldiers, a week after and right after that uh, Independence Day. So these are really the most important days uh, on the Israeli calendar. Uh, International Holocaust Day is a decision uh, by the UN uh, a few years ago. Israel's initiative as well, but but again, it's a different kind of uh, viewpoint. And we talked about this a little bit when we talked about, or, or a lot when we talked about International Holocaust Day. That is for the world, uh, and this is for us. That that is what I feel is is the difference. This is a day in which Israel lowers its head and lowers its flags, and and and. Deals with this. It's also the day of the march of the uh, living in Auschwitz. It's always a difficult day. Although my mother uh, always used to say to me that uh, we don't need to remember, right? We have Auschwitz living with us every day. Um, it's something that I picked up yesterday. Just to, I know that it's a figure that we know, but just to think about it—that the eve of 19, the eve of, of the Second World War, 1939, there were 16.6 million Jews in the world. And today there are 15 and a half million. Uh, and just to think about that, that it, it never, you know, it's very clear that we haven't recovered uh, even by that uh, uh, number. Um, it's, it's something to think about. I, and somehow I feel like um, as the years pass by, I'm less sad and more angry. I don't know if that makes any sense. But I, I, I somehow the more I read, the more I know, the more I learn, I, am, I understand less and I am angry more. That is, these are my feelings today. So maybe that will help us to um, escape to literature a little bit. What do you think?
1: Um, One of us wrote a book. Ah, well, I was, (laughs) yes, I did. And I have. (laughs) One thing I always remember you saying to us that in a way in Israel, every day is Holocaust Memorial Day. And Mm -hmm. I think that's powerful. Uh, You don't need a specific day in the calendar. It's there all the time. Uh, The second thing is about what you said about anger, because in a way that does connect to to my book. So I've been feeling more intensely the Holocaust Memorial Day in January and this one now, because I have spent the last two, now nearly three, is coming on for three years, immersed in this subject even more than usual. Because as you say, I've been working on this on a book. I know we're going to talk about it when it comes out. It comes out in June. It's called The Escape Artist. And it tells the story of Rudolf Werber, who aged 19, along with Fred Wetzler, escaped from Auschwitz and was the first Jew. And between them, they were two of only four Jews ever to break out of Auschwitz. And the significance of it, besides being an absolutely jaw-dropping adventure story, how they did that, which is an amazing thing in itself. um, it, They did it because they wanted to warn the world and they wanted to warn specifically Jews and the Jews of Hungary, who they believed were going to be next and were indeed next and who did not know what fate awaited them. Uh Rudy Verber's whole belief was once people know, they will not get on those trains. And the key crime against them before they were killed, as far as he was concerned, was keeping them in the dark robbing them of that knowledge. If they had the knowledge, they would, if not, you know, mount armed resistance, they would somehow just cause chaos, refuse to get on the train. The key to the whole operation, his view, was their ignorance and mm. the Nazi deception that kept that ignorance in place. So the story completely has fascinated me because it touches on all kinds of themes about what we believe and what we don't believe. In this post-truth era, Rudy Verber understood as a teenager that the difference between truth and lies was the difference between life and death. And Mm -hmm. that, to me, is a massively important lesson for us now. But it just means there's an extra punch. Last thing, he was angry. He was less sad than angry. Mm. He was the angry survivor. It's one reason Mm. why we don't fully know that much about him, because he wouldn't play the game of Mm. being the sort of gentle, forgiving Holocaust survivor on TV and... He was an angry man, angry with all those who had not told the truth about what was happening.
0: You know, I think the book is remarkable. Uh, actually, we talked about this. And I think what is um, remarkable about it, um, and you, you mentioned some things, it's so, besides being unimaginable story that the world doesn't know, which is quite remarkable, right? This is a man who escaped from Auschwitz. He did the the unimaginable, the unthinkable, and the world doesn't know who he is. So it's it's just that basic fact. And, And, you know, I'm not a spiritual person at all, but I wrote to you that I kind of felt that he needed the right storyteller to come along to tell his story. And indeed, the fact that you are a a very good thriller writer, uh, helps uh, very much, I think, book. I'm, I'm, I'm getting you very embarrassed, I know. I'm going to talk about this briefly. We'll talk about this more when the book comes out in June. But um, it, the, the other thing is just how relevant it is, because you think of, you know, and, and you talked about this a little bit, right, the difference between believing and accepting, right, maybe believing and really believing that something is, is happening. It, it really is what, what Rudy encounters. And I remember, again, growing up, that my mother used to say to me, if we had television sets in every house, Auschwitz would in World War II, Auschwitz would never happen. And the sad tragedy is we have a television in the palm of our hands. All of us do, and Bucha is happening. and Mariupol is happening. So so there's something else. There's something between believing and accepting, and that is where I think we're still stuck today. That is how relevant this book uh, really uh, is. And you know, it's it's a remarkable uh, historical account uh that kind of reminded me of somehow the garden of beasts but uh, you know i just think that everyone every person with a conscience and a heart should read this book um but again i made you quite um embarrassed so i'm not
1: well gonna... embarrassed but, but also grateful you so <laughs> that is that is very kind and um no i mean I'm, I'm really touched by that i hope people do find what you found in the story um, we should rather than handing out awards to each other, which is in a way what we've just been doing, <laughs> I don't know, um, I didn't, should... I didn't get
0: any award. I just got remarks about my tone and that I should talk in a lower voice. So I didn't see, there
1: any... it is. That's it. You sounded okay. just like her see, there.
0: Just, it just took me forty that's four, Anne minutes That's
1: the That's, that's <laughs> definitely, it. um, no, I will give you the supernova award at the end, but we have to give Mench and Hutzmer awards. We do.
0: Tradition is tradition.
1: You though. kick us off. Um,
0: I will, because it has something to do with uh, our topic of discussion uh, thus far. I want to give uh, the Chutzpah Award to Evangelical Pastor Mike Evans. Now, uh, he uh, calls himself the world's largest uh, evangelical leader, and he put out a press release saying that he will be leading this year's delegation of the March of the Living. We just discussed this, the uh, march uh, in auschwitz And uh, he, uh, when he put out this saying he will be leading the delegation, um, then a spokesperson for the March of the Living um, actually said, uh, no, who leads the people who lead the delegation are Holocaust survivors. He will be a part of the delegation itself. He will be uh, just marching there and participating out of the 2,500 people. So up to this point, the story is that he said he will lead the delegation. He's actually a participant. Potato, potato. We're still okay, But which makes it actually more of a chutzpah story, is that uh, last year he posted uh, this um, very long, um, let's say harsh critique of the anti-Netanyahu bloc in Israel. He's a very, very big Netanyahu supporter. And he wrote this, I have to quote. He said, I understand how the Holocaust happened, he wrote. German Jews were busy insulting each other, drunk on the wine of pride. They did not see the smoke of Auschwitz rising because they were more German than they were Jews. Quite clearly, I think, Uh, blaming the Jews for the Holocaust, if I read this correctly. And this is a man who then claims that he is leading the March of the Living. I think, dictionary definition of chutzpah.
1: I couldn't agree more. Give the man (laughs) a double chutzpah award. (laughs) I mean, it's it's partly that thing, that narcissistic thing that people do, where they take part in anything. Politicians do this often. They're always leading. Right. Mean, whatever it is, if you're just at something, you're leading. You know, right. but yes, because given his remarks on the Holocaust, what a nerve of this man! <laughs> I mean, really, a worthy winner. Um, shall I give out uh, on a lighter note our Mensch Award? That's
0: what you have left to do. I have
1: that left, and it is, you know, it is slightly self-serving. I must confess, because the <sighs> recipient I nominate, the, the committee did arbitrate and discuss whether I needed to recuse myself from these for people.
0: ethical reasons.
1: For ethical reasons, because I want the Mensch Award to go to my beloved Arsenal Football Club <laughs> this week, it's really a kind of p- objective reasons. Completely it's a
0: objective sort of, reasons.
1: It's a conditional b- Mensch Award because it's for something they might do. It's not something they've already done. It's uh, quite a there stretch. is talk. It's quite a stretch, John. It's it's a it is a reach this one, but there is there is talk that Arsenal might sign the striker Gabriel Jesus or Jesus, as it's actually spelled. Um, there is also speculation, and has been, that Arsenal might sign uh, the ace player Tammy Abraham, they, he was in Arsenal's sights recently, and Arsenal already have as a midfielder Mohamed Neni of Egypt. And one wise observer spotted that if all this comes to pass, Arsenal could field an 11 that includes Mohamed, Abraham, <laughs> and Jesus. <laughs> and therefore, for its work for interfaith coexistence. <laughs> if Arsenal pulls this off and has the three great figures of monotheism in its starting lineup, I think Arsenal Football Club will deserve a mensch Award. So I'm putting down a marker. It's contingent, Arsenal. I hope you're aware of this. You need to sign all, or make sure you have all three on the books, and then the mensch Award for this week is yours.
0: Right, so they have Abraham, Muhammad, and Jesus on the same team. Big deal, God did it first, just saying. <laughs> so what, Buddha as a goalie? How are they gonna do? How are they gonna continue from there? Just
1: Buddha kidding. would be good just, in goal, wouldn't they? I think just, so. Just I think so. Just being calm. Just, you, couldn't, you, know, you couldn't get a ball so. past him. The, the funny big. thing is,
0: you're still gonna need Karim Benzema to, to sign him to get something done. I'm sorry, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You had a good week this this week. I'm not gonna, you know, trash it.
1: Yes. Okay. We did. Good,
0: good. So a conditional mensch nominee is what we're doing
1: this week. It's, it's experimental. Con- it is. Um, if you feel already, not conditionally, that you enjoy Unholy, do rate us and give us a review. Every time you write a review, for example, on the Apple Podcast thing, it enables Unholy to rise up and become yet more visible to potential listeners. So that would be a great
0: help. Right. Unholy or We Holy. We might change our name. Um, <laughs> so we'll just say our thank yous this week to Rom Atik. Omer Primat and Irad Eshel for Original Music, and Jonathan, there's no escaping this. You will see me next week.
1: See you then, you need them.